All right, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everyone. I am your host, Charlie Shrem, and you're listening and watching another epic episode of The Charlie Shrem Show, your go-to place for the latest insights on digital assets and investments, Bitcoin, crypto, Web3, decentralized identity, everything, everything. We're using a Web2 world right now, and we're talking about a Web3 world. Some of us have no idea what that means, but I am literally reaching out and pulling you in because I want you to be smarter and brighter and make more money than your friends and your family. And whatever I can do to teach you and to show you my ways and the red flags that I've had over the course of my own Bitcoin journey for 13 years since the last days of Satoshi, through my years in prison and having amazing success the past couple of years, that's why you're here. And I'm your host, Charlie Shrem. I'm a Bitcoin pioneer. I'm a passionate advocate for the transformative power of cryptocurrencies. And today we're taking a deep dive into the world of digital assets, a realm that's so often misunderstood and misrepresented. Everyone thinks it's all about speculation and making a quick buck. Our aim is to challenge the narrative that digital assets are merely a means for quick profits. We have two distinguished guests that are joining me today, each representing unique projects in this space. First, we're speaking to a new friend of mine, Brent Dijon, the founder and chairman and CEO of Quenta. Quenta is a huge company all over Middle East, Africa, Europe. He's a visionary in the fintech space, and they're a comprehensive platform for everything, for tokenization, digital banking, everything. We talk about their mission to digitize all the world's assets and transactions, and how this can lead to huge amount of financial inclusions and help make us all a lot more money. And we're gonna hear from Valentin Pletnev of Quasar Finance. I was blown away by this guy. Despite his young age, Valentin has already made significant strides in the blockchain and emerging technology fields. We'll be exploring Quasar's work in decentralized asset management and the potential of multi-chain vaults. What does that even mean, multi-chain vault? How, how would that even work? So buckle up for an enlightening journey today. Get some coffee, your favorite beverage. Relax, go sit outside, enjoy the summertime. We're gonna have a good time talking about the world of digital finance. And remember, if you enjoy the show, please leave a review. Your feedback helps us reach more people and continue to bring you the best content possible. I'll talk to you guys in a second. What's really going on in the world? You know. We spend so much time in the echo chamber. Sometimes we forget about the transformative power of of, the, of these technologies. It's it's about more than just price swings and market caps. It really is about revolutionizing the financial system and bringing the unbanked into the fold. I don't know. We've been we've been talking about that, like the unbanked, and and no one understands like what does that mean? Who are the unbanked? Where where are they? Because a lot of us are listening. We live in these comfortable countries and and have easy access to a bank account and. From that, we have access to financial services, whether it's like investing in securities for our future retirement or buying your home or buying an investment property or just like saving money. We have that in, in some of these comfortable countries, but the rest of the world doesn't. There's a lot that I want to talk about with that. And I'm really excited on, on the show today uh, to talk about this, this narrative and stuff like that. We have Brent DeJong, co-founder and chairman and CEO of Quenta. Brent, you're an accomplished entrepreneur. Thanks thanks for so much for coming on the show today. No, my pleasure. Thanks for the invite, Charlie. Excited to be here, and this is a great topic. Yeah, it is a great topic. It's what you get to do every day, and it's what is not talked about enough. A lot of people like to use the buzzwords, but they don't understand exactly like what's going on behind the scenes. So 
Quenta, you're pushing the envelope, your comprehensive financial technology platform with a huge vision to digitize all the world's assets. But what's really cool about the company is you guys are based all over the world. You have multiple different divisions of business. You have like from the BAM card in Bosnia and Herzegovina to emerging payments in Africa. You guys, you're coming to us today from Dubai and you got offices in India, all over the world. You guys are not just like talking the talk, but you're walking the walk. You've got hundreds of employees. So I kind of want to like talk about all these different markets and, and how you guys are servicing them. Before we start, I want to make an important disclosure really quick. I am a sponsor of the one of the sponsors of the special purpose acquisition company that's currently in the process of merging with the company Quenta. The role could influence my views, and I want to make sure there's complete transparency for our listeners. The opinions and discussions in this episode should not be considered like financial advice. Of course, you guys know, but do your own research, consult with a financial advisor. But I just wanted to to, to bring that out there. Brent, what's going on? How's your how's your week going? It's uh, been good. I've uh, spent the week in Dubai and Abu Dhabi so far. I'll finish in Bahrain this week, and you know it's really exciting. You know, this is a part of the world that you can sit with a regulator and you can have a discussion around. You know, what are the services we are providing, and then therefore, you know, what regulatory framework should we really be sitting in? You know, there's a real eagerness from governments and regulators for companies like Kensa, and there's many out there that are doing different pieces, but uh, you know. Providing a service, trying to reach it, it, not even just the unbanked, but you know pay, people who have less access or maybe are have expensive access into financial products or market, and that's really where we're spending our time is just you know solving you know those friction uh, issues that exist in many many places around the world. How did the company start? Like, what was the first market? What's this backstory? Yeah, so I I've grown up as an investor, advisor initially, and then investor in international or emerging markets, and you know had the great fortune of being a part of a couple of great success stories, very rapid asset uh, growth at an investment management company in London, and you know invested broadly across emerging markets. The themes were pretty consistent in terms of that difficult access, and it was particularly the case where you found migrant workers where you found um, industries that were less understood. And so I remember in my very first job in 1997, we were securitizing workers' remittances, SWIFT MT100 payments, helping banks in Mexico, Turkey, Philippines, you know, raise money to have access to foreign currency flows, could pierce the sovereign ceiling, could lower the borrowing cost, and raise money. So in one hand, 97 was pretty interesting. And then I remember in 2012, you know, quite a few years afterwards, I was in Dubai and I was seeing long lines of migrant workers huh. and trying to send money home. And, you know, it's like, wait a minute, you know, you could send money from US to Mexico or you could send money from Germany to Turkey. You could send money, you know, different corridors. But, you know, there are a lot of other corridors that were not working back in 2012. Dubai, India was an example of that. You know, today there's a lot of good solutions for that corridor specifically. But, you know, there were long lines of uh, migrant workers and they were paying expensive fees in order to you know, send money home. So they had the inconvenience, often not being able to get a bank account, having to wait in long lines, having to you know, pay expensive fees in order to send money home. And then they had no control over the FX rate. They mm -hmm. had no control over, you know, exactly, you know, the timing of the, the money arriving. And so, you know, I looked at that and said, look, from 1997 to 2012, 
money's gone backwards, you know, and it just was harder and harder for you know, international, not just workers, but, you know, and not just migrant workers, but really all sorts of people to participate in the global economy. And there are some good reasons for that. You had FATFA in the U.S. kind of pushing for transparency and different things, but it also had a very negative consequence in terms of isolating further and, and making it more distant in terms of international citizens of participating in you know, global, well-defined you know, markets. How big is this market, the global market for, what do you even call it? Yeah, the remittance market, you know, I would say it's uh, you know, maybe $700 billion a year of money that flows, you know, across borders and in the form of migrant workers or immigrants who are sending money home to support families that may have better opportunities in money centers and have better earnings and wages and, and are doing that. And so, you know, it's it's just one of many use cases that, you know, we have focused on. It was kind of that generation, you know, kind of genesis use case that we started with because we saw the frictions. But once you get in and you start solving problems, you realize the problems, you know, are a lot broader. It's gig economy workers, it's freelancers, it's not just migrant workers. And it's not just like sending the money. It's the last mile on the other side. How do you what's the how do you help on the other side of the receiver of the funds you offer like different type of you know, like kind of like pseudo bank accounts, debit and credit cards, things like that? Yeah, so, you know, our our world of the, which we work in, we work in a token architecture world in the first instance and or maybe kind of the main instance. And so we find ways for people to connect through a new architecture. But new architecture, in particularly in emerging markets, actually causes fragmentation, doesn't, you know, really bring about financial inclusion. It can be a very efficient way you know, for two people that have, you know, live in the same architecture, you know, to oh, uh, collaborate or cooperate. So you're right. You need that last mile, but it needs to be connected into the an architecture. architecture. Yeah. Yeah. So, so what are have, those last mile? But they're so like antiquated, though. Some of them are and some of them aren't. And, you know, so last, you know, it's funny is because when I first started thinking about this use case, you know, in the kind of 2012-ish you know, and onwards, you know, there was a, a term called alternative payments back then. And alternative payments then really meant not just, you know, moving from bank transactions, but moving to things like mobile money or e-wallet. Words like crypto were hardly, you know, even in the narrative in terms of in the payments sure, industry yeah. in 2012. Now, obviously, today it's moved, you know, substantially beyond that. So we really think about at Kenta just that last mile being anything. It could be an ACH, it could be a Swift, it could be, you know, now they have things like PIX in Brazil or Spay in Mexico or UPI in India. These national sponsored, you know, local bank rails um, that help, you know, facilitate instantaneous payments. But it still could be. A Paytm wallet in India, an Easy Pesa wallet in Pakistan, a Mercado Libre wallet in Brazil, or Plin or in Peru. And these are all e-money, you know, kind of e-wallets that exist and help people to connect in in solving local use cases. But again, it causes more fragmentation because yeah. hey, if you want to go buy a professional LinkedIn subscription or you know some Facebook uh, you know professional uh, advertising. You're actually often one more step removed, and so you have to come back to, you know, an architecture that they're accustomed to—credit cards or local bank transfers—and so you still have to get one more hop back in. So while an e-wallet, 
is you know amazingly effective in the local you know context it still is not always that solution for global connectivity so what are you using as like the the mechanism to connect you're using crypto in some way your own blockchain to connect all these local last mile systems and these are like places where you receive money or you spend money or you pay your bills in whatever country you live in right and and you're like so you don't want to like take people out of those because you're adding friction so you're you're using blockchain technology to to create this kind of like global payment cloud if you will yeah i think it's very right um you know we we worked with a technology called quorum it was originally developed by JP Morgan and then Consensus. Oh, yeah. And we fine-tuned it and we changed it so that we can do 10,000 transactions per second because we wanted it, our network to be like a point of sale or a payments network. And so, but it also has, a, you know, a private permission nature to it. So we can make sure identity and compliance are, you know, at the core of the way the code base, you know, work. And so that architecture is great and it can link into not just your identity, but it also can link into the identity of a physical object, such as gold. So one of our products called G-Coin, and it comes you know, from one of our DApp called a responsible gold supply chain. So we work with the gold industry and follow gold from the miner through the refiner to the vault. And we make sure everything has an identity structure. Who's the owner of the miner? Who is the mine? What is the mine? What are the ESG or operating practices of the mine? What is the output or the, you know, Dory? you know, pro gold product of the mine. And we have all these identity structures and we can have this confidence about the physical product, um, the physical person in order to create these G coins, which is a title to gold. So it's an asset, it's not a security, not a derivative, not any, you know, any other thing that we just wanted to stay very close to the architecture um, that existed within, you know, traditional commodities. They're the Minneapolis Grain Exchange is a, a great example of where warehouse receipts have traded and their assets you know, for long periods of time. And so really all we've done is digitized an existing world process. Oh, this but is so we cool. then have that on a very global basis. So G-Coin, G-Coin is a digital title to real physical gold where one G-Coin is one gram of responsible gold kilobar. So, so you, you right. source responsible gold. Where is where is it custodialized? And where is yeah? Where, and then what, what are like the insurances and like business situations? If like the company goes bankrupt or something like that, like what's the? Because this is a big thing: people being able to own gold without needing to own physical gold. It's it's you know everyone's always chasing the least risky option. Yeah, no, it's a it's a good question. So we believe fully in decentralization. So we want de you know, a number of mines, a number of refiners, and a number of vaulters you know, working in our ecosystem. So if they meet our ESG standards, then they're allowed to license the technology and they're allowed to write information onto the blockchain. So we have a distributed vaulting system and the standards that we've set, that's part of the responsible gold standards, it has to be a level one vault. It has to be insured. So we have some of the largest vaulting companies in the world Brink, G4S, Loomis, there's been some consolidation in the industry, but you know a number of different vaulting systems. We, we do currently have all of those as a requirement that they're based in Switzerland. And a lot of that's for tax reasons, because yeah. we want to make sure that you know the, the gold vaulted in Switzerland. Switzerland has some of the best bilateral tax treaties in the world with different countries around the world. And so that this is, can have the best tax treatment 
you know, for somebody who's you know holding it. The G coin could be a simple savings tool. It could be sent to somebody like a remittance, like the migrant you know worker, as an example. Oh, good. Or it could be spent, and it could be spent. You know, if a merchant accepts a G coin, that's fantastic. But if not, through the connectivity into these local last mile rails yeah. that you talked about actually early in the in the in the show here, it could be India or Bosnia or Brazil, any number of different countries around the world. Yeah, there are a lot of. Also, it's like part of everyone. If you look at a lot of people that I speak to in their personal financial portfolio, they have precious metals there at some point. But like holding holding an asset that can't work for you is kind of annoying where you just, you're just relying on it to go up. With crypto, you can borrow against it or sell it if you need to in an easy way. So now you're allowing people to like hold gold in their portfolio, but they could sell it, spend it, so without selling it, but also potentially borrow against it and things like that in the future. So that's really cool. Yeah, I mean, the crypto world has exploded in terms of functionality and features. And, um, you know, some have been absolutely empowering and others have been, you know, exaggerated in terms of, you know, the way they've been used. So, you know, we're we're excited about the G-Coin because it is a peer-to-peer network and there's zero gas costs in terms of using it. So it has the ability to be that hedge for a crypto portfolio, as you outlined, or it can be used in a utility nature in yeah. terms of daily spending uh, and different things. And that has a big impact in, in emerging markets. It's it's so cool because what we're talking about is like all your customers are the rest of the world. Would you would you like to see the US regulatory regime better? Like would you would you like to see it? Why are we so the last ones here? Yeah, you know, it's you know, I'm an American. I grew up in the US. I went to schools, I live in Texas and you know, actually, you know, Texas actually, you know, has floated a law that the comptroller will put out a digital gold currency. And so, you know, we're seeing some progressiveness and you know, business friendliness in in Texas and some other many other states as well in terms of forward thinking. But uh, I, I have to say, you know, in the U.S., that there is not a comprehensive framework, and so it, there's a lot of debate on who is responsible, who's not responsible, you know, for regular, you know, regulation oversight. And it, it has stymied in innovation, and it's pushed a lot, you know, things offshore. The G coin, you know, we have a, a number of no action letters on the G coin, you know, from states across the U.S. because it is an asset. So, you know, it is not. We're not a bank. You know, we're not in a, a any other kind of regulated. We're not a broker dealer because these are assets. These are you know tangible things that you know people own. It's a title. It's like owning a car. You know, it's like I have a title. In this case, it's just a digital encrypted token title. You know, it's to that bar of gold. And so, you know, we have opted in voluntarily to be a FinCEN MSB at the national level in the United States. Uh, and so we're trying to tag and follow existing regulatory framework in whatever country that we're operating. Yeah. And, you know, there have been many other countries that have been a lot more forward in either publishing or engaging in some kind of sandbox or some kind of controlled in a regulatory environment. And so it's safer for entrepreneurs to push innovation and new products, but it's also then safer for consumers as well. And I think this is where a lot of uh, regulators in the U.S. have been really you know, focused you know, as of late is you know, how do we protect the consumers? The great thing with a G-Coin, you're protected. You own the gold. You know, it's one of the most protected you know, asset classes you know, out there, meaning it is a physical asset. It's so funny that crypto made gold a more fun asset to own again. 
Yeah, it's it's actually come full circle, right? I mean, gold was broken and you yeah. couldn't use it as a payment instrument. And that was what was needed. And so, you know, Bitcoin, you know, was absolutely phenomenal in terms of opening, you know, eyes into sure. you know, there's a different way to relate with one another. And, you know, what we've tried to do is, is just solve a lot of those things, velocity, scale, throughput, identity, physical. And so, you know, we can be you know, and, you know, a modern day of a traditional store of value. And that's the G coin. Very cool. That's like the one of the best products, I think. I love when you take these older products like gold and you merge it with a newer technology and then you're doing it for for the rest of the world. It's cool that you get to travel around the world and 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 looking at different spending habits and sending habits and try to like understand different people. And you probably get to get to do a lot of fun things. Thanks for taking the time and coming on the show today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, Charlie. It's uh, great to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Brent DeJong, thank you so much for, for taking the time. Again, uh, Kenta, everyone can check it out. Gcoin, we'll have all the information in the show notes. You guys got operations all over the world, so very unique company. I'll talk to you soon. I'm really excited that this podcast, The Charlie Shrem Show, is now powered by Waxman. I think I met the CEO, David Waxman, back in... 2015 or something at an Ethereum meetup, and he told me that the future belongs to the fearless. And that is why they are producing the show right by my side. What an amazing team we have now. It's so amazing. You guys have been hearing some great updates and following along. If you don't know, Waxman is the leading global strategy and communications firm advising the next generation of companies in Web3, disruptive technology, Bitcoin, crypto, fintech, artificial intelligence, and venture capital. Waxman's clients are ambitious leaders and businesses that are on the frontier of this whole new economy because they really do believe that the future belongs to us and we're the ones building it. With services across everything from digital marketing, public relations, social media, investor relations, financial communications, recruiting, and public affairs, they're helping companies and individuals like myself seize the business opportunities that we deserve, overcome challenges, that we all are gonna face and achieve sustained success. Head over to Waxman to learn more. You guys are gonna love them. We have them in the show notes. Check it all out. It's W-A-C-H-S-M-A-N.com. That's W-A-C-H-S-M-A-N.com. It feels like we're finally getting into some cool action, the all Blackstone ETFs. We've been talking about the DeFi industry has grown. If you look at the total market cap of, of all of crypto, that is like 1.2 trillion now. That is up from seven or 800 billion during this crazy bear market that we had. The Federal Reserve has paused the interest rate hikes for now. It seems like our industry is kind of like grow together, shoring itself up. We're, we're doing some amazing things. And digital assets and investments are a hot target lately, especially for regulators. This is not a regulatory episode, guys. Don't worry. Cover regulations too much lately. But it's important, you know, all that stuff. But often, a lot of times, these tokens and projects get seem to be painted in this negative light. So we're speaking to a couple of guests on this episode that are representing different projects in the space to shed light on the fact that digital assets in the crypto industry aren't all about shilling tokens and making a quick buck, but actually quite the opposite. Valentin, thank you again so much for coming on the show. You have a crazy, crazy background, but what are you working on right now? Yeah, thanks for having me, Charlie. It's super nice of you. And uh, yeah, it's, it's great to hear that, you know, giving us a platform to speak and to kind of, you know, show from that side, because I think that the space has a lot of black swans. So it's great that you're picking out and giving the viewers a chance to hear it from, from the horse's mouth, I guess. Currently working on Quasar. Quasar Finance. 
Actually, I used to say one and a half years, but it's almost one and three quarters. So time really flies. Yeah, I work in Quasar Finance, which is not my first crypto thing at all, but it's the first DeFi native thing that I've been working on. And so, yeah, super excited to be on here. That's actually a very interesting angle, right? So to give a little bit of background, you were part of the founding team of Real Items, which interestingly enough, separately, I remember hearing the pitch about Real Items a year or two or three ago through my fund, Drew Adventures. But Mm -hmm. uh, prior to that, you were part of Draper University. We have a mutual friend there, Adam Draper. What an amazing person. Yeah, yeah. The entire Draper family is incredibly gifted. Tim, his father, who was one of the founding fathers of Silicon Valley VC, and yeah, Adam, of course. Actually, there's a lot of circles that overlap. Our lawyers used to work for Adam. And then actually, funnily enough, the founder of Real Items, I, I was part of the founding team. I was the first employee. But the founder of Real Items, David, who was a good friend yeah. of mine and also an investor in Quasar, is actually, that's the how I'm staying at his house. And this is his NFT collection on the oh, wall. Oh, we so met once. It's full circle. We yeah. met once, or I think we met once like two years ago. That's really cool. Oh, that's a great NFT collection. Give my listeners a reason yeah. to check out the YouTube. There you go. <laughs> I read that you funded your way through Draper University in Silicon Valley. It's not cheap living there by, by working for a lot of different projects, helping them get through tokenomics, uh, developing product, which a lot of product projects never focused on product. It's always like theorizing and then we get on and and try to build like a nice user interface. And that's kind of like lately, it's been one of the hardest things to do in in DeFi. And then now you started Quasar. Congratulations. And you're running like a fully on-chain company now, right? It's like different than, than what you did before. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's um, it, it's it's been a long way since my first contact with with Bitcoin. I was like sixteen when I heard about it first time. It was pre twenty seventeen bull run. You know, I, I have done a lot of things that I would consider Web two point five, or you know, consulting advisory on the edge of crypto, essentially two traditional businesses, two traditional finance in Europe and Germany. But it's very exciting to have a completely crypto native team. It, it, take, it took me a while to understand that I want to be crypto native and not on the edge trying to, you know, kind of educate backwards. I would actually wanted to push forward. And so, yeah, you know, we are 15 people now, which is incredible to say. Wow. We, we are fully decentralized, remote, like actually to a ridiculous amount because we've never, we've never considered, you know, except for obviously sanctioned lists, uh, we've never considered, you know, where someone comes from. And so we just happen to be incredibly decentralized. We have like 10 nationalities with 15 people, 10 or 11 even, across all different time zones, fully remote. And, you know, it's a, it's a new era. It's super exciting. And it's, it's a, honestly, things of crypto that people don't think about when it comes to the value it brings is also on the, on the side of working in the industry, which a lot of people are not fortunate or, you know, haven't really found a step yet. What's great about it is that, you know, global access, the industry is decentralized in and out, not just on chain, but also on access and opportunity and talent. And so you're getting a lot of exposure to people from all over the place that have vastly different reasons to be in crypto. I grew up in a very religious community. And what was cool about growing up in religion, although I'm not in it anymore, is that when, when you go somewhere, anywhere in the world you go, if you can find someone that practices very close to you, you're like instantly family. You have something in common. You have like a moral compass. You have like things that can guide you and create like a framework for a relationship without knowing the other person. And I feel like Bitcoin and now crypto, but it's it's really started with the early Bitcoin community of like 10 to 12 years ago for me, was this was, an, it was another 
it was almost a better religion for me to run to because it felt very the same. And I that's one of the best parts about continue I'm addicted and I'm like psychologically unemployable in any other industry. I'm addicted to this industry <laughs> and I probably will will do it forever because that community is just sometimes you get jaded and burn out, but that there's nothing else like it. When the whole COVID thing happened, the rest of the world had to like pivot and change how their businesses were were run. And all it was for us a validation. Because you have 10 people in 10 different time zones. Yeah, man, I could not have said it better. You know, when um, I, I grew up kind of, um, my dad was into philosophy, I actually wrote a book that was also published about philosophy for me when I was born. And then, you know, growing up in Germany as kind of, you know, first generation, my parents both fled from, you know, ex-Soviet Union and socialist co- countries in East Europe, you know, having a completely new relationship to money because I saw that my parents had like relearned the system in yeah. their 20s and 30s. The second I saw Bitcoin, it just I nerded out because it it covered all three things I care about. It covered philosophy, it covered monetary systems, money, and also it covered tech, which uh, I used to play the German Championship in Counter Strike. Oh yeah, I play Counter Strike. Yeah, I was overclocking my computer. I was like, you know, I was taking off the dye from the CPUs yeah. and putting liquid metal cooling on the actual chip, like all of those things. So when I saw Bitcoin just covering the trifecta, I was like, this is incredible and. Yeah, I've never taken a step back since then. No plan B. Well, the plan B is plan B, which is a funny one. Remember that Kennedy gave a talk on like the Berlin Wall? And so you grew up like your your family. You, you, you probably learned from your family what monetary policy can have an effect on like individual people. Americans now, we're learning that now. Oh, yeah. It was a profound learning experience for me growing up. And I think it's one of those experiences a lot of people in the Western world don't get to have, as you've just said. Which, I mean, for better, to be honest, but we are all facing these challenges coming up. My dad had to sell a house for pennies oh on God. a dollar because of sanctions. He, is a, he was a Soviet Union citizen, so when the Russian sanctions hit after the annexation of Crimea, you know, he had to sell his house for pennies. Uh, really? What do you mean? I, I didn't hear something like this. So he, this is interesting. Yeah, so when the, so he, he has a very international job. He's a dancing instructor, and so... He usually works and travels. He also doesn't live in Russia anymore, but, you know, works and travels abroad. And so he used to build a house in Russia uh, for, yeah. you know, his new wife and his new kid. And then it was almost finished. But once the sanctions hit, he was not allowed to work in some of the countries anymore as a dance yeah. instructor. He, his income was cut. And then also the currency, the ruble went downhill very rapidly. 2014 It was one of the first waves of sanctions towards Russia. So this is like a story of like an individual human story that you never get to hear about of, of, of someone on the other you side. Never get, it's caught. just numbers, right? And it's just numbers. And look, I, I'm not making any statement about, uh, you know, the sanctions because it totally there was a reason to do it. But again, there's actual humans affected by it on the ground that had nothing to do with the situation. I'm and sorry. So, wow. You know, seeing that growing up, it, uh, it affects you. Uh, you realize that money is very fragile in a world, especially in a country like Germany, where everybody just assumes it's completely stable. That's a crazy story. Remember that speech that Kennedy said he's like, Ich bin ein Berliner? So I, I've been saying yeah. it for years and I kind of like, and you're, you're a perfect example is that we jokingly say, you know, each being ein Bitcoiner. And although we're all working in yeah. crypto at heart, everything you just described, every, if, if someone wants to understand what it means to be a Bitcoiner, listen to the first 15 minutes of this show, because it's what you just described is what it really means. It's what the heart of Satoshi wanted. And the beauty of it is that you can take that ethos and that guiding light and develop your business in crypto and follow those same principles. Under that, yep. introduce us to Quasar, but follow kind of like that, you know, what I'm talking about here, because 
a lot of people struggle yeah. with being a Bitcoiner at heart, but working in crypto sometimes. Yeah, totally. And this is actually going to be quite easy because the company has been built up from the ground up to just follow these principles. So there's not going to be a stretch to make the alignments. But essentially, to explain it from the non-Cosmos native perspective, DeFi is the future. That's the assumption number one, because it allows people permissionlessly globally to use their money as they wish, which sounds like something that shouldn't be radical. And is actually the definition of monetary freedom in Wikipedia. But, you know, I think the last couple of years have proven that that's, that's a fad. And so that's the thesis number one. And the, th the second thesis is that as crypto matures as a market, the necessary expertise to go through that market become higher and higher. It becomes more complex by the day. While we are pushing on one hand to a better user experience, the back end gets yes. harder. I mean, if you really, if you try to, if you try to explain curve finance to anyone or convex to anyone, that's not in the, in the system. Good luck, right? Like that's not where you start. And so, and to find a way to abstract those complications away. And as a market matures, usually you get to a level where instead of the entire you know user group being homogeneously able to see through it, you start getting a disconnect between the people that have a lot of time or the right environment or the right preconditions to dive deeper as other people maybe don't have the time or the capabilities or the contacts to get into it. And so once that split happens, you usually face an industry where the only way to create fairness is to create asset management relationships with depositors. Because at some point, the people on the top understand the industry better and they're going to make a better profit. Hence why asset management is one of the biggest industries in the world, because we, we have now so many different globalized parts of our economy that it's just impossible to know about all of yes. them. And so you have expertise, you have specialized people everywhere. But if you look at this relationship, it's antithesis to almost all in crypto because it's a custodial transaction that is very permissioned and incredibly trusting. It's the trifecta of things you don't want in crypto. And so the, the, the question is, how do you translate those three things to become something that you can do in DeFi? And for instance, Yuan Finance did it quite well. It is a bit too DeFi native for our approach, but it got it quite well. It's a, smart, a permissionless smart contract, so check. It's low trust because the contracts are audited and open source, check. And it's non-custodial beyond the smart contract holding your assets. So that's already where we got into asset management DeFi 1.0. The issue, or I guess the, the, the issue that was created after Yearn is we are now in a multi-chain future. We are now in a future with hundreds of chains which is essentially the death sentence for yes. user experience and the reason why so many centralized exchanges, their wallets are just increasing in, vol in, in numbers. Because what I think people overlook is decentralized exchange wallets are phenomenal for user experience because they're cross-chain, if you think about it. People like to have their tokens on a centralized exchange because they can have Ethereum next to their yeah. Polygon, next to their Cosmos in one place. And so as, again, DeFi complicates and you now have to essentially stake by default, not lose your, your funds, not lose to inflation, that is, and people are exploring different ecosystems because there's different values, you now face a very big challenge on user experience. And so that's pretty much what we're trying to tackle. So in one sentence, Quasar Finance is a layer one that aggregates other products on different chains and shows them to the user on one platform. And so what we mean by that is we are actually comparing different products and building vaults that run on different chains than ours. And you just have basically one stop where you can do your DeFi. You're mirroring? Now, that sounds great, but where's the caveats? 
So let me be very honest with the caveats. We're built on something called IBC. I don't know if you, have you ever had someone on the show explaining. We've had IBC? a couple of the founders of of Cosmos and Tendermint. We've done a whole series on the example the, probably yeah, inner blockchain communication. Yeah, we've covered this. My listeners are like nodding their heads, and if they're not, they're going to listen to those episodes. Perfect. Yes, they should. So I'm not going to go too deep, but IBC, you know, the only way to bridge assets with no security assumptions beyond the consensus of the actual chains, right? And so now that we have that, we can move away from a user experience that's essentially the same as imagining that you need Edge browser for any website that's hosted by Azure and Google Chrome for any website that's hosted by Google and Safari for any website hosted by Apple. Like that's where we are right now. That's pretty much the experience, which is ridiculous because most people don't care. That's a good analogy, actually. Yeah. And it's ridiculous because most people don't care where their website is hosted. Yeah. They just want the data to load fast, get what they need, and their data to be safe. That's what they want. And so we need to abstract away the entire technocracy in crypto and all our nerdism about chains, about how Solana is worse than, than, than Ethereum and about how Cardano is still slow at smart contracts and Cosmos. Like All of that nerdism needs to be abstracted away. Ecosystem maximalism, in my opinion, is going to start flowing away as we build better yes. connections, trustless connections between all these ecosystems and build products that transcend them. A user on Quasar in three years should not necessarily know which chain is actually generating yield on as long as the chain qualifies to be a decentralized distributed system. And so that's the mission at Quasar is to allow global access to best-in-class yield opportunities transcending ecosystems. If all chains are going to be similar to browsers, then what will be the chains of the future? If no one needs to know the type of chain in this multi-chain world, then why will people still continue to launch major layer one blockchains? That's a very good question. I think the chains are not the browsers. The browsers are the wallets. I think the chains are the the data centers, right? And so if you think about it, there's many, many reasons to have different data center providers. First of all, you are always cutting somewhere to increase something else, right? You're always making trade-offs, always. Ethereum is incredibly large, but it's so generally purpose that it's really hard to build some products and actually, you know, quite impossible. Cosmos chains are ridiculously fast and super cheap to transact, but the security is not on par with Ethereum. And then you have anything in between, right? And so the reason for that is I think products are going to be more refined and going to be more specialized, and so are going to be the chains that they pick. That's a really good comparison too. What you just said is like data centers are the blockchains and browsers are the wallets. How can you yeah. expand that that analogy? So we we use a I have a different analogy for IBC, which is the passport standard, the global passport standard. Yes. If you look at a normal bridge, a custodial like well, they don't say custodial, but you know, a, a three out of five multi-sig bridge. All it really does is it's you going to a shady place in the United States giving someone a bar of gold that you would like to prove to some, to someone in Germany you have to be able to buy an apartment, and him giving you a piece of paper saying, yep, no, you definitely have this bar of gold. So you fly over to Germany with a piece of paper that says you have a bar of gold, and you hope that it gets accepted in Germany, yeah. which in bridged assets, there's one or two places you can exchange them because usually they don't have the same penetration of the ecosystem yes. as the native app. Now, the issue that people are not looking at, which is why if you look at rec.hq slash leaderboards, all the biggest hacks in crypto are bridge hacks. Why? Because for the entire duration of the bridged asset, you are exposed to the risk of your gold being stolen. You are not done with it the second you transact through the bridge. The entire time you're holding the receipt, you need the underlying to exist. And the underlying is usually not well secured or in one fat wallet that invites a lot of people to yeah. try to hack or a social engineer, right? So that's not a system you can build an economy on, in my opinion. So what we need to do is you need to be able to fly with the bar of gold. That's the goal, 
right? And so what IBC is, is IBC is essentially a passport standard. So let's look at the Schengen area in Europe, which is Cosmos. In Perfect example of, of Cosmos, yeah. There's a lot of standards we agreed on together, different countries, different trade-offs, but a standard. We've agreed to the European Union framework. And within that framework, we've now agreed that each country accepts passports from another country visa-free. Great. Now, what you have to consider, though, is if you have a German passport and you go to France, you still have a German passport. Just because you're in France, you don't have a French passport. But France, because of the standard, can scan your passport and verify that you're a real human from Germany with all these attributes. So now you have an actual, the same asset you're moving between different countries, Yeah. but different countries can assign different internal numbers for you. So let's say I fly to US now, I get a stamp. That stamp has a number. In the US system, my passport is assigned a different number, but it's still my passport. It's just now the United States understands, oh, this German passport is legit. We have now given it a system to make it adapt to our local system. And so what we are essentially doing is we are expanding the passport standard beyond Cosmos, beyond Europe. We're bringing IBC to other ecosystems, to the United States, to Australia, to Africa. And so once we have that, you can build an actual economy because now you can transact the native assets and send them across the pond. IBC enables all new blockchains that choose to launch within IBC to, as long as they follow that standard from launch, it's very easy for them to be in the, in the system. But you have very, very popular, and I'm going a little bit off course here because you, okay. you, you seem to know, you seem to be able to answer some of the questions that I have. The, the problem is in the multi-chain world is you have blockchains that have already launched and they exist. Mm -hmm. Monero, mm -hmm. Bitcoin, yeah. they're, not, they're, they're either UTXO based, they're not account based, like Ethereum is, they're not Turing complete or EVM or whatever have you. Yeah. So how do you like, solve the problem for that? Are we going to always question. just need bridges and wrapped assets? Or Great question. Not necessarily. So there's some edge cases like Bitcoin where there's a lot of actual research going into it. And a lot of people believe that it's possible, but we don't really know yet how. Yeah. Because something like Ethereum, since the invention or I guess the, the adoption of ZK and Light Clients, you can actually do it by having a chain that acts as the messenger between IBC-enabled chains like Cosmos and Ethereum. And that chain on itself also runs on IBC. So that chain's consensus would essentially allow for the proofs. Yeah. Now, there's a couple of teams working on this. In fact, I think by the time people listen to this episode, it's not going to be more than three or four or five months for the first prototypes to show up. There's a team called uh, Union. There's a team called Polymer. There's a couple of different teams that yeah, work on it. Yeah, interesting. But effectively, that they have, to some degree, at least on prototyping, proven that it works, which is incredibly exciting because, you know, as much as I love Cosmos and as much as Cosmos, in my opinion, is one of the funnest ecosystems to work in, one of the most rapid innovation, as we have also invented proof of stake with Tendermint, Ethereum is the big guy. And to build a real, ex, you know, real user experience for people that transcends one ecosystem, we need to bring IBC to Ethereum. It's already on Polkadot, so we're going to connect to Polkadot very soon and then take it from there with the rollups. I remember meeting Jay Kwan and all like the Tendermint people like so long ago. And it's so, and I didn't understand how what started as just an SDK for yeah. other chains became its whole IBC ecosystem. I missed like a year. <laughs> yeah, it was uh, IBC, I think 2021 was the invention was the, the launch of IBC. We we launched in 2021 as well. So like a half a year or you know three quarters of a year after IBC launched. But 
you know, in my opinion, IBC is the arc reactor of, of Cosmos. Yeah. You know, I think the app chain thesis, there's a lot of products that shouldn't be built on an app chain. There's a lot of those. There's a lot of projects that shouldn't have a token. There's a lot of things that, you know, are much better suited to be on Ethereum or rolled up. However, IBC is undoubtedly yeah. the communication layer, the TCP IP that we need to adopt. And so it's kind of the combining force of Cosmos to push IBC forward. There's teams like Jack Samplin from Strangelove that are doing a lot of the work of bringing it to other chains and working on with business development partners on different chains. Because the interest is high as IBC doesn't have a token. So there's no incentive misalignment, you know, no insiders that yeah. are pushing forward. It's really just the public good, which is what makes it so exciting for adoption. That's really great, actually. And it's one of the most unique things about IBC. It's it's probably one of the farthest along on yeah. on building out that like multi-chain, multi-coin ecosystem. On Quasar, I get pitched all the time, different DeFi companies too that are trying to like make take complex DeFi strategies and complex hedge fund strategies, complex yeah. like strategies that focus on proprietary private equity algorithms. That's like such a, a yeah. you know, yeah, a, yeah. A word vomit, you know. But what? Yeah, I mean, yeah. like, what are these actual strategies? Because apparently, allegedly, it's like a trillion dollar industry. So, asset management is apparently forty trillion dollars. It's asset. forty trillion dollar industry. Yeah, with, like, honestly, Charlie, I read that number and I fact checked it six times. It's a third of all global assets are apparently managed, which is just like that number just blows me away. But a third of all assets. Global, global assets. assets are under management. That's a crazy statistic. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And so asset management is a really important industry to onboard to crypto. Now, when it comes to proprietary strategies, hedge fund strategies, look, I didn't grow up in New York and I didn't grow up in the, you know, in Manhattan. So, you know, <laughs> I'm not necessarily the right guy to be able to approach hedge funds there and bring them on a chain. That's not really the purpose, though. The purpose, the goal is. The infrastructure we build allow for anyone to build strategies. Now, strategies don't need to be, oh, this is an AI bot and it's super intelligent. And for some reason, oh. it reads lines that go up and down better than you. That's not the point of it. The point of strategies is always to serve your goal. Now, most people's goal is, I don't want to deal with this. I just want to make sure I don't lose out on yield I could generate. And my risk level is usually low or medium, right? And so when people look at strategies, they should look at it like like different funds, less so than you know just kind of seeing yes, the AI bots in front of the eyes. What a fund can do is anything from the S and P five hundred, which passively holds five hundred assets, all the way to a hundred x leveraged sub millisecond trading, you know, bot algorithm. Both of these things are a fund. So to try to kind of you know the image of a fund needs to be changed a little bit in the public eye of crypto. And vaults are just our term for funds. I like vaults better. It's just a pool of money that people pool into to execute something. That's all it is. A vault and fund is the same thing. So by building vaults in crypto, they don't even have to be, we don't even have to have the best strategy in the world because usually strategies imply some sort of centralized or small group control. But for example, one of the vaults that we've already launched is depositing to three LP pools on osmosis and just keep auto-compounding the returns and keep LPing to three different pools to balance it out if the price goes up and down. That's it, right? It's not magic, but it automates stuff you would do already anyway and allows you to have a relatively low risk profile without having to keep check on things all the time. And it also allows you to not miss out on yield because you're not uh, auto-compounding. Yeah. And beyond that, once we go to IBC going beyond Cosmos, 
the user experience, the savings of aggregation are going to be huge. If you look at Booking.com, right? Does Booking.com, they don't really care which car site you are booking from. They don't care if Hertz goes under and enterprise takes over. All they care about is that they're showing you sufficient options for what you're looking for. And you can decide, do you want a big luxury car or small, you know, a small pickup or, you know, a, a smart? It's completely up to you to decide. And so is kind of the philosophy of Quasar is that we're not pushing for you to use our proprietary trading algorithm that we will never share with the public. We're offering you a chance to generate yield on different ecosystems on one place and decide based on your risk profile, do you want to subscribe to a passive strategy or to an actively managed one? So you allow people to create these vaults and we're not calling them funds anymore. We're calling them vaults, if I understand yeah. you correctly. It allows multiple depositors to create a smart contract to define the financial waterfall if you will, like money comes in, money comes out, how how it's used and not how it's used and how it's spent, but how revenue is shared between the depositors because right. maybe there's different levels of people who manage things differently, whatever. And then what, right. is, what, what you do is you allow then those vaults to launch and then everything is on chain now, all the data, all the, you know, how things do. Can other people yeah. then join these vaults? Right. So we are obviously not the inventors of vaults, right? The thing that's our secret sauce. Yeah, you're agnostic. Yeah, the first, well, that and also that we were the first ones to make the smart contracts work through IBC. So effectively, IBC, when we came into the market, was just a way to send letters, right? Or actually just uh, passports. And we've co-developed interchain queries, which is one of the first additions to IBC. So oh, now cool. you can query data. So suddenly it's a message layer on top. And then interchain accounts was invented, not by us, but by another team, which is literally like an embassy in a different country. So instead of having to send a letter from Germany to the United States, you can send a letter from the German embassy in Washington to the United States, which is already, again, much more practical. And so yeah, once you had the infrastructure, which is purely human usable, uh, we were the first ones to figure out how to build this using smart contracts. So now a contract can send the letters and execute. And so the, the infrastructure offering, the one thing that we are basically really pushing to the public and to users of vaults is you can deploy a strategy on Quasar. And as long as the chain has IBC, ICA, and ICQ enabled, which by now are you know six, seven, eight different ones, and it keeps expanding month after month, you can run a strategy on that chain without deploying on that chain. Oh, cool. You don't have to, so even when you have a chain like Moses that has permission, Cosm, Wasm, you don't need to pass governance to deploy there. You can literally build a strategy that's entirely computed on Quasar and then just sends signals and gets its data feed through IBC and executes on a chain it's not deployed on. And that's the scaling approach because now we can start building products that are chain agnostic without using bridges in between and without using a centralized exchange in between. This is very, very cool. And, and I can understand now how this is the next level of, of kind of what IBC wants to, to, you know, their protocol to be used for. Thanks. We're very proud of it. So what type of strategies would you like to see the regular world use, not crypto people? Great question. Honestly, indexes. I think that there's a good reason that ETFs are such a huge market. And I think that for most people, it's the right risk profile. If you think about the S&P 500, all you're really subscribing to by buying it is getting the minimum viable share of the U.S. economy growth, which for most people is the right decision. Yeah, just following these simple indexes like just if the united states economy grows by five percent at least give me my cut of it right i sure so, one yeah. industry may have grown by 200 but at least give me the cut of the average growth by letting people do that you're cutting out so many middlemen and brokerages and brokers and things like that that enable people 
hear me out. There's actually something very cool when it comes to feature enabling too that is that is possible with this. So if you buy an ETF right now, the S&P 500, can you vote on the General Assembly of the underlying companies with no. your shares? No. Can you get the underlying shares? Can you redeem them? I don't think so. Sometimes you don't even get dividends, or at least you get a huge cut. Yeah, it depends on, right. like, there's a lot of fees and it's managed and it's all, a lot of times you don't, yeah. So the beauty, beauty about the ETF infrastructure we are currently building, we're launching it by the end of Q3, beginning of Q4, is that you can redeem the underlying. So you buy one asset, you subscribe to one strategy, deposit one vault. If you want, you can get all the underlying assets from the ETF. All, all of them, number one. Number two, you hold the assets on the native chains which means that you get staking rewards. Oh, that's so, so while so you're like index, you hold you also get the staking rewards. And number 3, you also get the voting power because the native assets on the native chains. And so you can create an entire market around the voting power of the vaults and the strategies as well and create a sort of on-chain BlackRock or Vanguard, but instead of, you know, some sleazy 65-year-old Wall Street guys, it's actually a global community of depositors. And so with that infrastructure, you can now allow people to have all the benefits that actual traditional finance offers, plus more on-chain, permissionlessly. And also, that's again a big one, ecosystem agnostic. So for instance, let's assume that there is now IBC to Ethereum and to Polkadot. The question of our hedge fund strategy is very irrelevant at that point. Yeah. Because 90% of people are going to want to have an index that holds Ethereum in a staked version, Polkadot in a staked version, and Osmosis and Cosmos Atom on a staked version. And if they can hold all of these assets in one place, on chain, on their ledger, or their wallet, and get staking rewards and vote on the underlying, then that's going to solve most problems most people in crypto have. And so that's what we're targeting. Going back to your analogy in the beginning of the episode of the gold bar and needing a receipt, yep. that's like your gold bar being in all places at once in real time. Yeah. Like it moves in real time. And <laughs> because it's a buzzword, I'll throw in liquid staking derivatives are obviously a huge part of making that infrastructure happen. Because at that point, you can you can now move staked positions, which allows us to do the consolidation to IBC. So for instance, if you want to redeem the underlying assets, you get the liquid staking tokens. So cool. Valentin Pletnev, thank you so much for coming on the show. Quasar Finance. We got to go off topic today and get into a lot of different stuff. I appreciate your time. Thank you. And I hope you're, you're flying and everything works out. Thank you so much. <laughs> been a huge pleasure and quasar.fi there's another quasar so quasar.fi is ours and then you can find all the links there and that is a wrap on another enlightening episode of the charlie shrem show we've journeyed through the world of digital assets and i hope you guys believe that this is a lot more than speculation brent valentin thank you guys for joining us today you guys have gained a fresh perspective on the potential of these technologies. Remember, it's not just about riding the wave, it's about understanding the ocean, and the motion of the ocean. I'm Charlie Schramm, and it's been such a pleasure navigating these waters with you. If you've enjoyed our voyage together, please leave a review and share it with your friends. Stay tuned for more exciting explorations. Next week's episode, we're just editing it now. It's, it's so good, it's epic. Stay curious, stay excited. Keep diving into the world of digital assets until our next adventure. Peace.